It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hey, friends, this is Andy. This episode of Accelerate is brought to you by KiteDesk. KiteDesk is the all-in-one sales development platform that lets you manage all of your sales development activities, such as email, direct dial phone calls, and your daily to-dos, all in one place to open up conversations, book more qualified meetings, and really create a predictable pipeline. KiteDesk Flow and KiteDesk Find allows us to find exactly the right people in the industries we're looking for, in the roles that we're looking for. That's KiteDesk customer Michael Orfis. Michael is head of sales at Stratified. In addition to the all-in-one management of his sales development team's days, KiteDesk helps him with another big part of his job. We have the ability with KiteDesk to do what we call targeted campaigns. Our conversion rate from what we were doing in the past to what we're doing now has been really massive. So, you don't have to take tons of time to research, prospect, then blast large lists of people that never turn into sales opportunities. We're seeing higher clicks, we're seeing higher open rates, and Without question, we've seen a massive increase in pipeline generation. So, to learn more about KiteDesk, schedule a free demo, and learn how to create predictable pipeline at your sales organization, go to kitedesk.com forward slash accelerate. That's K-I-T-E-D-E-S-K dot com slash accelerate. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. Joining me on the show today is Frank Saspides. He's the senior lecturer at Harvard Business School and author of the book, Aligning Strategy and Sales, as well as numerous articles on the Harvard Business Review about sales. Frank, welcome to Accelerate. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me, Andy. My pleasure to be here. So take a short minute and introduce yourself and maybe fill us in a little bit of your backgrounds, you know, how, you, how you got around to teaching sales. Well, uh, in some sense, I've always taught it. Uh, my background is uh, you know, fairly straightforward. Um, I was your standard issue um, uh, business school professor uh, at Harvard Business School for a number of years, and my research always uh, concerned um, uh, go-to-market, channels of distribution, and sales. Then I left academia, uh, ran a business uh, for almost 12 years, and, um, what you know, of business? It, it, we, we were a software firm, uh, but the software in many ways was an excuse uh, for the professional services uh, we provided in the learning management space. Okay. But, you know, when you've got to meet payroll, you um, you have a new existential respect uh, for sales. Uh, then after getting lucky in business, uh, I could give you a different story, but that was the truth. We sold at exactly the right time. Harvard called me back up uh, to uh, be a professor, and I taught strategy for a few years, and I was surprised by what I didn't find. Um, you know, arguably, the world does not need yet another strategy book. Uh, I also know the world does not need yet another uh, particular sales methodology book, but there was nothing to connect the two, nothing uh, about the link between strategy, assuming you've got one, and um, what that means for customer acquisition and retention. And yet, when you look at the numbers, and people are always surprised by these numbers, uh, U.S. firms alone spend over $900 billion annually 
Now, annually means every year, over $900 billion annually on sales. That's not marketing. That's three times as much as they spend on all um, advertising, Super Bowls, everything. It's about 20 times uh, as much as uh, U.S. companies spend on all digital marketing. And it's almost 35 times as much as they currently spend on social media. Uh, so, you know, I always quote Mark Twain when I cite those numbers. Uh, if you're going to put a lot of eggs in one basket, keep your eye on that basket. Uh, <laughs> and uh, very, very little written about that link. That's uh, why I wrote the book that I wrote. Well, that, those numbers are, are fascinating. So th- we spend 3x the amount on sales we spend on sort of conventional you know, advertising, as you talked about. And what, how many times what's spent on digital marketing? Uh, well, the numbers there are a little cloudy because, uh, you know, uh, what people now call digital, the, the, the amount spent on digital marketing is probably exaggerated a bit because it's a way to sound 21st century. But it's at least 20 times uh, what people spend on digital. And yet... <laughs> As you and I were start talking about before we came on the air to start start recording the interview was was yeah one of the real crises I think in sales is that at least based on the research that's being done is that there's this huge spend and yet we're not we're not really moving the needle in terms of productivity improvements I mean there's all this has been an explosion of technology and sales technologies and sales enablement technologies and yet the reports that come out the research is done showing that. You know, close rates in the business-to-business space are actually declining year after year. That you know, the same percentage of reps aren't making quota. The you know, number of percentage of deals that end up in no decision are increasing. You know, fifty to sixty percent of deals in pipelines that they you own know, no decision. It it seems like uh, it seems like a real inflection point for us. Well, it is, and I and I think the numbers are even um, uh, in many ways bigger and even more interesting. Uh, than that. There was a good uh, study done by McKinsey uh, about two years ago. And when you think about the impact of the Great Recession, you know, the so-called Great Recession that's, you know, depending on how you date it, starts in late 2007 or 2008, I think uh, these numbers become a bit intuitive. But what McKinsey found is that if you look at the average S&P 500 company, Um, motivated uh, by the absolute necessity to cut costs, the average S&P 500 company has cut its cost of goods sold about 300 basis points. Now, that's a big deal. That's a very big deal. When you add up what that means, that's close to a trillion dollars. On the other hand, if you look at SG&A, selling and general administrative expenses, they've not gone down. They've actually gone up as a percentage of sales. Uh, and um, well, as you said, intuitively they would if you've if you've cut the uh, cut your costs that way. Well, no, I think what's intuitive is that uh, you you cut your cost of goods sold as a as a response to a long, sustained, severe recession. What is not intuitive is that your SG&A uh, goes up, uh, and uh, that's a big deal. Uh, uh, and what you see going on, I think, is not just a sales productivity issue, although it is. I, I think you're exactly right about that, Andy. But what you see going on is a big inflection point in terms of productivity studies. Uh, the reality is that most companies have actually done a pretty darn good job 
on cutting their costs. Uh, and by that, I mean what they do in shared services, their back office costs, mm-hmm. uh, operations uh, improvements, manufacturing improvements, and so forth. But they haven't done a good job in uh, becoming more efficient, more productive in their go-to-market. But I think that's where you see the increasingly the... Um, uh, the focus of productivity studies, you know, and it's there for the same reason that uh, the famous bank robber Willie Sutton robbed banks. Yeah, that's you know, where the money is, right? That's where the money is. That's that's exactly uh, right. And I think this has implications uh, in a number of areas, but one is for what it means to be a sales leader uh, in the 21st century. Uh, and it's increasingly difficult to hide. <laughs> uh, you know, what those tools that you alluded to do is provide people in the C-suite, and in particular finance people, with more transparency, more information, more data about what is and is not happening in the enormous amount of money that they spend on sales. And what was traditionally a sort of black box, you know, well, you know, sales is what the salespeople do. Uh, I think those days are fast disappearing. And, um, it's going to be very, very important uh, for a sales leader not only to master uh, the uh, the processes in sales, which is a big job in its own right, but to be more literate and articulate about the finance and other uh, areas of productivity that are important. Well, it seems like one of the artifacts that we're seeing, and this is this is still early days, right? I mean, it's just in the last three, four years, there's been this, this veritable explosion in the amount of sales technology applications and systems that are, that are coming out. And so I said, it's still early days, but one of the, the things that we're seeing as an early artifact of this greater transparency, if you will, is, and this is an issue that I have that I think is sort of misplaced focus, is there's a focus on activities, right? The number or the amount of activities, or it's, it's more about quantity versus quality, and so, yeah, now we've got greater visibility up and down the chain in terms of what's happening in sales. And the response is, well, to do more as was necessarily do better. I, I think that's right. I, I think it's a very, very complex uh, issue, however. First, I certainly agree with your main point. Um, activity is not the same thing as an outcome. Right. And whatever else sales is, it is fundamentally a performance art. It is about outcomes. You either close the sale or you don't close the sale. You either get the price or you don't get the price. So uh, simply to measure clicks or, you know, what happens at this stage of the funnel short of uh, that outcome uh, is, uh, is very, very myopic. I agree with that. On the other hand, there are lots of things that are relevant factors in generating a sale besides the heroic efforts of good salespeople. Uh, and, you know, what you do in marketing uh, at the beginning of the funnel mm-hmm. counts, uh, what your uh, pricing structure is accounts, uh, uh, what you do uh, in your online uh, media, you know, the so-called last click uh, issue, all of those things count. So, while I agree with what uh, you're saying uh, in general terms, I think uh, you know there is a lot of 
uh, let's measure what we can measure as opposed to the ultimate productivity metrics, there are reasons for that. Uh, and one of the reasons is that it is complex to measure what actually causes the sale and is getting more complex as customers clearly uh, use online media to um, to do research about products and prices and competitive offerings uh, and so forth. Yeah, I, I just had finished reading a book, I don't know if you'd read it, uh, called Absolute Value um, by Simonson Rosen about, uh, like I said, the subtitles, what, what, uh, what truly influences customers in the age of nearly perfect information. Uh, some Harvard or Stanford grad school, uh, business school professors. And it's sort of interesting, you know, they talk about, you know, there's this common misconception that, that um, you know, all this information is overwhelming for buyers and through their research, what they're finding is actually, you know, buyers are actually really adept at uh, finding the information they need to help them. They define this term as absolute value, sort of the being able to, to understand the experienced value or experienced quality of a product before you, before you buy it. That, uh, you know, there's research showing that, yeah, buyers are actually very adept at that. And that, as a consequence, sort of the some of the conventional tools and influence begin to wane, wane in importance in terms of their decision making. Well, I'm not sure I'd go as far as making that kind of uh, generalization. I think, as always uh, in business, uh, the answer is it depends. It depends on the product. It depends on the service. It depends on the category. Uh, certainly, there are many um, uh, areas, lots of consumer goods. Where, um, you know, as a general rule, I guess that generalization holds. But there are other areas, uh, areas of software are a good example. The value in the product is what an economist calls usage value or experiential value, meaning that you don't know what that value is before you use it. And uh, it often, you know, it really doesn't matter uh, how many online. Um, uh, sites you can go to, uh, you have to use it in your particular organization uh, to understand that. So uh, I, I'm not sure that I. But from a decision making standpoint, you have to make the decision before you you get to the usage value, though. Yeah, but there are lots of ways that those folks make that decision, and there are lots of ways that sellers uh, encourage them to make the decision. I mean, look at look at the uh, traditional SaaS businesses that are so common. Uh, out in your neck of the woods, right? Uh, we have the free tier, and then we have the tier that allows you to do X, Y, and Z that you pay for, and then we have the premium tier that allows you to do even more. Uh, all of those are ways to move the customer through what is fundamentally a usage value a purchase. Uh, but you know, purchase decisions are not necessarily binary; they're not just yes or no or all the way. Uh, the world has always been, and still is, uh, much more complex and interesting mm -hmm. than that. Oh, yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, I, I, I think that's one of the problems that, that we have in sales in general is that, and I think, you know, the SaaS sales model serve an, an exemplar of that is, is that there's this attempt to sort of reduce everything to, to black and white and to process and to sort of say that it's all a science as opposed to saying, yeah, there's still a fairly substantial human element involved in getting the customer what I call the last mile from whatever they can learn online and so on to answering those those final questions that make a you know get to the point where they can make a decision and a choice. No, I that I agree with and I think that's one of the great um 
uh, paradoxes uh, uh, about sales. Uh, and here I do think the research is fairly definitive. If you look at all the elements of the so-called business value chain, if I can use that kind mm -hmm. of MBA jargon for a second, you know, all the activities from sourcing to um, operations to selling and service and so on, sales is um, arguably the most context specific. In other words, uh, what works in industry A doesn't uh, necessarily work at all in industry B. In fact, what works in sales at company A uh, in the same industry doesn't necessarily work in company B because of that company strategy, the target customers, the buying processes of those customers, etc. At the same time, for some reason, sales is the area of the, um, the value chain where people feel most empowered to make these huge, big generalizations. You know, sales is all about relationships <laughs> or sales is all about this particular uh, SaaS model. And I do think if we look at uh, tech in general and uh, my reading of the blogs, you know, basically what we have are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who make these generalizations based on N equals one, you know, their particular experience at that particular company, but it hath always been so. Right. It had always been the case that sales is very, very context-specific, but also uh, susceptible to these huge generalizations. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think that's what separates uh, good business people from mediocre business people. They're the ones that are not suckers for the glib generalizations and do their homework. Well, but I think that, that we have sort of an example of that. I mean, take at least in my opinion, is, is take the SaaS business. I mean, it, you know, there's a new model, new business model for selling software that de, you know, sort of determine the need for a new sales model. But, you know, people look at this new sales model as, you know, a savior. And the fact is, as you said, it's really context-specific. And, you know, the, the failure rate of startups, you know, hasn't changed because they're using this new sales model. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, I think there are a couple of things there. Uh, one is like any model, it gets developed, it gets uh, refined, and it gets uh, mature and saturated. Now, if you sort of think about uh, how the SaaS model, and I assume that what you're referring to there is primarily an inside sales approach, mm -hmm. right. with SDRs, BDRs, right. content marketing, etc., um, a couple of things to be said about that. It is no coincidence that it took off circa 2008-2009. Uh, essentially, uh, you needed a, um, a, a lower-cost go-to-market. Uh, secondly, I don't think it's a coincidence that if you look at the human resources that staff that model, they're mainly... Um, you know, uh, at least at the SDR stage, uh, fresh out of business, uh, fresh out of uh, undergraduate uh, types. And, you know, during a recession, those people have trouble finding jobs that will take those jobs. Uh, and some of those models have worked very, very nicely. But boy, that's an increasingly saturated space. Uh, you know, increasingly what we call content marketing, we used to call the yellow pages. Uh, so uh, lead generation uh, is uh, increasingly difficult in that model. 
And as with any model, it's about the entire process. It's not about any particular portion of that process. Right. Yeah, but uh, my point is it's sort of been touted as sort of the end-all, be-all. And to your point, it's, it's becoming saturated. You're seeing it. I had a conversation with a VP of sales, a, a high-profile startup in, in the Valley. Actually, been at multiple companies and just... His fear was that, just to your point exactly, is that it's just become saturated. It's increasingly difficult to attract the attention of the customers, and you know they almost feel like it's sort of a, being used sort of a slash and burn strategy. Yeah, but I'm a bit optimistic about that, Andy, because as you know, there is no such thing in any competitive economy uh, uh, as end all be all, and no. when you get people and especially investors either talking or acting that way. Smart, clever people disrupt that model with more interesting things. And I, I see no reason uh, not to believe that's not going to happen. And it's, ultimately, it's good not just for business, but it's good for society. Well, but to a question you and I had talked about a little bit before, before we come on the air, is, is that, yeah, I'd be interested in what your thoughts are on this. Is because, yeah, we've seen, assuming this, you know, what i call the SaaS model, the inside sales model, has, has certainly been disruptive to some degree but when we see the research reports about sort of some fundamental measures of performance throughout the sales business is they're really unchanged or getting worse, slightly worse on a trend basis you know, over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. So mm-hmm. what, what's your thought about So what's, what's really can disrupt you know, the basic productivity of sales? Well, I mean, I think there are a couple of things uh, that are going on. And, you know, productivity is a mystery in the general economy for economists, uh, as you would expect, because productivity is actually, you know, is ultimately the outcome of human behavior. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you find something more complex than human behavior, you know, I'm all ears. Uh, let me know. Um, but, I mean, I think there are a couple of things going on. One is uh, we are living through a um, uh, 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 an inflationary and innovative period with sales enablement technologies. And there's no reason not to believe that as with any technology, it takes people some time to figure out what in fact it really is good and not good for. And we're still in the relatively early mm-hmm. days mm-hmm. of that. So comment number one is give it a little bit of time. Comment number two is most of those studies look at technology-based businesses. SaaS is a good example where, you know, the price curve, you know, is not exactly um, one that cheers up investors. You know, the price curve in many of those businesses looks like a ski slope in Aspen. So Mm -hmm. if by productivity we mean how much is sold uh, by a salesperson, price uh, uh, has something to do with that. And then number three, I think is a managerial issue. Uh, and that is that, um, ultimately, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's about understanding the buyer, understanding the buying process that's relevant in your business. Selling is always more about buying than it is about selling and understanding that any of these tools, any of these technologies are enablers. They are not the end game itself. And, you know, while that sounds obvious when someone says it, it's a, it's a truism that, as far as I can tell, every generation of managers has to um, uh, re-experience for itself. 
<laughs> well, that and that's an interesting point. I'm sort of chuckling at that because getting back to your point about you know endless sales books that exist out there is I think part of the reason that that we see this continuing sort of cycling and recycling of of sales methodologies, if you will, is that yeah, there is no carryover from generation to generation. It's like, you know, every new generation entering the workforce into the sales force has to relearn these basic truisms as you talked about. Yeah. But again, I, I'm um I'm a bit more um, sanguine and optimistic about that. I think you are describing uh, the uh, reality. But the reason I'm a bit more sanguine about that is the following. Business is not physics. Uh, The important things in business are relatively easy to say, right? Be customer-focused. Make sure you focus on uh, buying, etc. They're relatively easy to say, but darned hard to do. Uh, And so I have no problem with people uh, putting old wine in new bottles. Uh, I, I think that is one of the ways that a, a social activity like business uh, does get better and better. You know, the challenger sale, which at least for a few years, my, my sense is it's, you know, sort of uh, beyond the horizon now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for a few years uh, was very, very popular. Uh, as far as I could tell, what Brent and others did was uh, repackage what we've always known is true in B2B sales. And sure. that is, it's a really good idea to get specified. Right. Um, But I have no problem with that. I have no problem with um, putting new words, new frameworks around perennial truths if it actually moves the meter in the organization. And I do think you do see that constant recycling in sales. But sales is in large part about motivation. And I think that's part of what motivation is. Ah, Well, okay. So (laughs) let me ask another question. Slightly orthogonal what we've been talking about, but it's, you know, we've been talking sort of about generalizations to some degree. And in a recent article you'd written, you had talked about the Pareto distribution of sales and sort of said that, you know, everyone sort of believes it's true across the board, but, but is it actually true? I mean, has anybody ever, in a sales basis, you know, has, has anybody ever done any research that, that you're aware of that says, yeah, this is really the case? The case you're talking about is the uh, variance. Yeah, yeah that, you know, 80% of sales come from 20% of the salespeople. And that. Oh, yes. No, I think a number of uh, research studies support that. And, and in many cases, it's more uh, than 80%. The, the fact is that variance in actual performance in sales is much more uh, than it is in many other areas of business. And again, I think once you think about this, you can see why. Uh, Sales is ultimately what takes place in the marketplace, right? Mm -hmm. Value any business is ultimately created or destroyed out there in the market with customers uh, in a competitive, changing environment. And that's qualitatively different than, for example, manufacturing productivity, where where we've got more control over our factory and our operations. It's qualitatively more uh, uh, complex and different than in our uh, human resource policies, where we can set those policies. 
And as a result, what you see in studies that go way back and, uh, and uh, uh, studies done today is that, uh, the, you know, the, the productivity of salesperson A versus salesperson B in the same firm varies by three to five times, three to 500 percent. Mm -hmm. right. For me, the most interesting one that I've seen is a study of retail salespeople at the same counter. In other words, they're at the same counter selling the same products, and there the average variance is about 200%. So, yes, uh, th this is not speculation. This is, uh, you know, as close to empirical fact as you're going to find. Uh, there are such things as stars in sales uh, organizations, and they're very, very ubiquitous across sales organizations. So, let's take that example, the, the retail counter, because... What did the study say that accounted for the 200% variable between people standing side by side? Well, I, I hate to put it this way, but some people do work harder and smarter than others. That uh, that accounts for the um, uh, the majority uh, of the variance. They're just they're better at presenting the product. They're better at selling. They're better at connecting with the retail customers. They often develop a clientele and, as a result, uh, an annuity revenue base. All of those things that one sees. Uh, among um, a good, highly productive salespeople across industries were also true uh, behind the retail counter. So where does it start, though? I, this, is, this is something that's really interesting to me. Is, is, is there's, I think there's this dichotomy. Is, is Beatrice, see what you know, research you've done or seen on this, is that, that um, you know, a lot of training done on skills improvement for sales, but to me, it seems like it really starts at the more basic level of, you know, sort of basic behaviors and habits, right? I can't train somebody to become more skilled at questioning unless they're in the habit of asking questions to start with. Well, uh, yeah, I guess I always point to three things as um, uh, the, uh, the places to um, look at and continually be good at in uh, building a world-class sales organization. The first is hiring uh, because it is about people. And here, uh, the uh, research tells us that hiring practices in general in business, but especially in sales, I don't know any other word to use, are abominable, just terrible. Right. Classic examples of the uh, cloning bias. In other words, yes. uh, I sit down with you. Uh, and after an interview or two, I am outrageously confident that on the basis of those interviews, I can predict your actual on-the-job performance. And the research tells us that uh, the vast majority of managers have no right uh, to that confidence. In fact, and this is not an exaggeration, Andy, what a lot of the research says is that many, many companies would literally be better off not interviewing when they hire, but instead picking resumes at random. Uh, that they, it, 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 it's, it, it's at that uh, stage. <laughs> and I'm not now, surprised do, by that at all, by the way. What do you do to get better at that? One is you get serious about hiring. You, you go beyond these generic job descriptions. Right. And most importantly, you do what I think more and more companies are actually doing. And that is you not only do interviews, but you have all sorts of behavioral assessments, and for that matter, on-the-job behavioral assessments exactly. as well. Because again, sales is about behavior, but you begin with hiring. 
And again, the data here tends to surprise people, but average turnover among salespeople across industries in the United States averages between 25 and 30% annually. Mm -hmm. Now, what what does that mean? That means that for most companies, every four years or so, they are in effect having to hire, develop, train, socialize the equivalent of the entire sales force. Any human resource investment of that magnitude demands rigorous oversight. So that's hiring. Second, uh, for me, is the most underutilized lever for affecting behavior in sales, based on my experience, is performance reviews. Busy sales managers um, very often don't really do performance reviews. They do what I call drive-by reviews that are not really about development and evaluation. You know, they tend to be, you know, you will or won't get your salary raise discussion. Uh, And that is a trainable skill. It is a trainable skill to uh, get people better at performance reviews. Um, I wish I had spent more time and more money uh, in the business I ran uh, around performance reviews, and most companies have a long way to go uh, in that area. And so, what's the ideal frequency for the performance review? Well, I think that uh, varies uh, depending on the company, but certainly at least once a year and probably much more often. But it leads to my third point. What do we know about development of people in any activity, but especially a creative activity like sales? is feedback is important, but also what you do after the feedback for follow-up. And what, what performance reviews need to do is to be linked to the other elements of performance management in a company. That would include training. In sales, it would include ride-alongs. It would include all sorts of um, uh, informal coaching that in a good sales environment take place. But in answer to your question, those are the three things that I point to. They're not exotic. I think they're fundamental. Hiring, performance reviews, and then the follow-on training and other performance management practices. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, for me, hiring, there has to be, you have to test for the skills that you, that you need in the job. I mean, yeah, if, you, if you're going beyond doing so the rudimentary job description you talked about, if you're putting together a you know, set of job specifications, is if somebody, something that somebody needs to be able to do in the jobs, you need to test to assess whether they can actually do it or not. Yeah, but I, but I think you, you, um, you've got to do that by, A, understanding what really are the sales tasks. Yes. And again, sales tasks are determined by your company's strategy and target buyers, yes. not by a generic selling methodology. Nope. And then you've got to have things in place that, um, uh, you know, that, that uh, encourage and enable the folks doing the hiring. And in sales, this is mainly frontline sales managers things that encourage and enable the folks doing the hiring to do more than, well, you know, looks like me, uh, sounds like me. This worked for me when I was uh, his or her age. And you can see there are other social implications to that cloning bias, uh, you know, um, uh, including other forms of bias that have to do with gender, race, etc. It is not a happy situation. Well, no, and a perfect example is, yeah, you look at... uh and this is especially true, I think, in 
in some of the inside sales companies or companies employing inside sales that we see is you know they got this bifurcation between their SDRs and their account execs. The account execs they call the closers, and so job descriptions are all these sort of testosterone laden in terms: closer, hunter, extrovert, da da da. That you know don't attract women into the role. Well, you know, my favorite story, a true story, I remember business I ran, you know, as I said, it uh, we had software, but it was fundamentally a professional services organization. And until we reached about 40 people, I interviewed for every job. And I mean every job, secretary, everything. Mm-hmm. And in sales, I'll always remember uh, interviewing this one wise guy. And, you know, I gave him my standard speech, which is that this is a service business. We deal. We have big clients. It's all about people. Uh, You've got to understand that going in. uh, Are you okay with that? Now, in 12 years, I never had anyone tell me, no, I'm not okay with people. (laughs) But I always remember this one wise guy who said, oh, people. Some of my best friends are people. Um, Now, you know, that, that, that sounds funny. But unfortunately, when you're dealing with the platitudes that describe most sales positions, that is what a lot of hiring managers fall back on. Oh, sure. I mean, yeah, tell me your strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, yeah, right. Another example of a penetrating question. Quote, unquote. And so, Frank, now we're in the last segment of the show. I've got some standard questions I ask all my guests. And uh, the first one is a hypothetical scenario in which you, Frank, have just been hired as the VP of sales by a company whose sales have stalled out. And CEO is anxious to hit the reset button, get things back on track. So, what two things could you do your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact? Well, I mean, the biggest impact is to sort of uh, come up with uh, uh, hypotheses about what is going on. Uh, now, it may be a question of effort. It may be that uh, people are um, uh, are either not working hard enough or smart enough. On the other hand, it may be a question of the marketplace. You know, do we still have the relevant product uh, and um, uh, approach? And what you do is very, very different depending upon what that diagnosis is. So, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's uh, that's number one. I will say this based on experience. One of the things that has constantly surprised me and all the data I've seen says this isn't um, uh, changing. But basically, if you look at sales compensation policies uh, in the United States, uh, the number I'm about to cite has been remarkably stable, you know, give or take a few percentage points for 30 years. If you look at incentive comp and you ask yourself, all right, how does a salesperson who understands his incentive comp plan, and the vast majority do, they just do. If this is how you eat, you will study that plan. If you ask yourself, how do they make money? Um, basically, what in most 70% of incentive comp plans say is you make money by selling more. Uh, uh, and, and it doesn't matter whether that's a high profit sale or a low profit sale, whether you sold to a customer that's high cost to serve or mm-hmm. low cost to serve. So you can see what the message is to salespeople in a plan like that. There is no such thing as a bad customer. Go forth and multiply. And that's what they do. So the second thing I would do is look at the plan, see what the incentive is, and what that means for the orders we are getting. And very often what what is going on in many, many organizations is that independent of whatever the espoused strategy is, the real strategy of the company is being determined 
by that plan. And in effect, what we're doing, and this very often stalls sales, what we're doing is asking some of our customers to subsidize others. And in the 21st century, where there's more information and more transparency, that's a difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. All right, good answer. Love it. Um, so now, just to finish up, we've got some rapid-fire questions. You can give one or answers or elaborate if you wish. So when you were out running your business and you had to go out and sell, what was your most powerful sales attribute? Meaning, what is it I think I did yes. well? Yes. Um, well, uh, at least in our particular space, uh, I knew what I was talking about uh, when it came to um, – uh, the product and um, uh, uh, at least the going in issues at customers. And I emphasize that because the basics in sales are very, very important. It really helps to know what you're talking about when you're in front of a customer. Now, I know that may sound a bit glib, <laughs> no, but I, I was going to say ast- shocking. <laughs> yeah, I have been astounded at how many salespeople do not. And that is a training issue. The, you know, the basics here are basics for a good reason. Product knowledge, up-to-date product knowledge counts. Now, again, I consider that a necessary but not sufficient cause of being an effective salesperson, but it is a necessary right. cause. Right. And I'd like to think that um, I sort of knew where we uh, applied potentially and where we didn't. Okay. So here's a question, and I'll, I'll, I'll see if it's appropriate. This is for your, in your situation. So, who was your sales role model? Oh, uh, I had many. Uh, I think it's a very good question because I think um, sales, again, it's a performance art, it's an experiential art. How do you become a good salesperson the same way you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. Uh, To use the more uh, technical jargon, it's a classic example of what the uh, behavioral folks call modeling behavior. Uh, And I think what you find is that what good salespeople do is pick and choose. They uh, they, uh, see what someone does to develop contacts and they pick what fits them. They see what someone else does to close, and they pick what fits them. And I was very much like that uh, myself. So it wasn't one individual, but a number of people that I had seen and admired and respected and said to myself, I can do that. There were others I admired and respected. And when I saw the way they sold, I, I as I say, I admired it, but I just said, I can't do that. I'm, I'm not that good. Um, but modeling behavior and many models. Okay. So, other than your own book, what's one book that you'd recommend every salesperson should read? I'm still a big fan of uh, Neil Rackham's book, Spin Selling. Um, Neil, unlike most folks who write about sales, um, you know, every sales trainer has an incentive, basically, to say, my book applies everywhere, and that's just not true. Again, it's it's a very context-specific activity. And there are two things I still admire about, uh, about Neil's work. One is he knows where his research applies and where he doesn't, and he's pretty darn clear about that. So there's just mm-hmm. good intellectual integrity. And secondly, the bulk of that book is about how to ask questions. We all know that asking questions and listening is important in sales. Surprise, surprise. 
What Neil does in that book is operationalizing what kinds of questions depending upon the context. So uh, again, the book's 25 years old, but it's, you know, the place where I urge my students to begin. All right. All right. Great answer. So last question for you is uh, what music's on your playlist these days? Uh, I am a big fan of jazz music. Uh, I am a big fan. uh, Who did I just listen to this morning? Bill Charlap. I have no idea what you know who Bill Charlap and his trio is, but um, I'm writing it down as we talk. And you should get from the West Coast to the East Coast, go to New York. You'll see him constantly in one club or another in New York. And uh, he's, um, he's one of the great jazz pianists of our generation. All right. Well, I'm a huge Keith Jarrett fan, so that's, that's, on, my, uh, that's on my list. Well, we, we share that uh, obsession. I am a big fan of his solo concerts as well. Yeah, that's my writing music. I put that on. It's like a Pavlovian response. I just start writing. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right. Well, Frank, thanks for being on the show. Uh, Tell folks how they can connect with you. Uh, Well, um, I've got a website, uh, franksespedes.com, and uh, I'm a professor at a business school. um, And I guess, yes, I guess uh, all the other uh, usual suspects these days uh, via LinkedIn and so forth. All right. Great. Well, thanks again. And remember, friends, thanks for taking part of your day to listen to the show. And remember to make it part of your daily routine to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And one easy way to do that is take a minute, subscribe to this podcast, Accelerate. That way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Frank Cespedes, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining me. And until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guests, visit my website at andypaul.com.